Use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. This is My Name Is My Name, an anomalous humanities podcast with APS. On today's episode, I sit down and talk with Joshua Dubler, author of Down in the Chapel, and a professor at the University of Rochester. at the top there. I'll be speaking with Joshua Dubler on today's episode. As you'll hear in the interview, uh, Josh and I are very friendly with one another, um, and so I actually felt like we started off uh, pretty chatty. It took us a while to get into some of the intellectual meat, but uh, it's a fun conversation. It's an interesting conversation. I think there's a few points where we hit on things that are uh, somewhat difficult to think through. So Josh has some particular thoughts, for example, on the recent murder of the three Muslim students in North Carolina. Uh, we talk a little bit about social media, which is always a bit of a minefield, especially as, you know, I always think that Twitter is basically useful for outrage, sharing cat videos, uh, and keeping up with your friends. Um, Obviously, that's a bit productive since people have made good political use of it, um, but I think that's pretty local to uh, kind of a, a tool in the midst of protest, uh, whereas, you know, sometimes it can lead to some sort of ugly, ugly stuff and, and whatever. And, you know, I'm clearly part of that as anyone who follows my locked Twitter account knows. So maybe it's just projection. You know, at one point, Josh sort of uh, turns this interview thing back on me and demands that I sort of give a longer answer to, to something he was curious about. So I tell a story um, about my biological father. Uh, I won't repeat it here since it comes in the, the, the show, but it got me thinking about uh, my father and um, I guess he's been on my mind a bit lately. Uh, partly because when I was home visiting my uh, little sister and my mother, uh, I found an old letter from an aunt that included my family tree. I haven't talked to my father uh, since I was 12. We had a phone call, I think, for like half an hour when I was 19. But the last time I saw him and, you know, we really talked in any meaningful sense was when I was 12 and lately I you know after I found this this genealogy I thought I'd maybe try to track him down and get back in contact because it's been 20 years and I don't know maybe there's something interesting about having a father 
And I was also curious because I, I have a half-brother um, who I haven't seen since he was like one or two. I don't even know. So armed with Facebook and some names, I was able to, to actually find my father, which is not an easy task when the last name is Smith. Since Facebook is all I have, I sent him a friend request and I uh, sent him a message, uh, wrote a long sort of letter um, trying to say, you know, I'm sorry for whatever 12-year-old mistake I could have made, which was, if you're curious, uh, having some moral qualms about him being a pothead. Okay, I say moral, they were crazy, batshit evangelical qualms about him being a pothead but still I was 12 and I say that somewhat sarcastically but I mean it when I say that I want to take responsibility for whatever I did children can be cruel after all and then I told him a little bit about my life which uh, I was sort of surprised to find out as I was writing that I'm kind of proud of a few things like getting a PhD and writing a book and writing another book and translating even if that's always a, a fraught task and you know teaching um, and I thought maybe um, he might be proud too uh, but I didn't hear from him still haven't heard from him it's been I guess two weeks now uh, and You'd probably have to accept the friend request to even see the message. Uh, but then I, I tracked down my half-brothers. I added them, nothing. I added my stepmother, who, from what I can tell on her Facebook page, I think they're separated. And then I finally found my half-brother. There's something about getting in touch with him that interests me. Uh, that I'm kind of drawn to, and I don't exactly know what it is uh, I don't know that we'd have anything in common or like each other but growing up in this really alienated way where I had these stepbrothers we were never close and we were never family uh, even in the sort of modern family sense of that um, you know my stepfather never really knew what to do with any of us and so he kind of fell into what he did know which was being a uh, army guy and a cop which for anyone who knows me knows that that doesn't really accord with my essence but you know a friend of mine uh, co-translator of uh, Principles of Non-Philosophy uh, Nikola Rubchek you know she has all of these, these sisters and brothers and we'd sometimes talk about the difference uh, in our experience of family because um, she felt very uh, part of something even if uh, family is sometimes difficult whereas I don't know sometimes I do feel despite some closeness with my mother uh, that I kind of sprang out of Zeus's forehead I don't feel like I have a past I don't feel like I have roots and you know that's maybe totally fine if I did find out what my roots were, it'd probably be utterly normal. But still, I, I feel, you know, alienated, deracinated. And that made me think about something that uh, Jared Sexton talked about. Um, 
gonna I'm gonna actually just play this clip from from Jared Sexton. This is a talk he gave. I'll uh, put the link up on the website. But he's responding here to a question about natality. And the alienation has been important to that um, distinction that I've tried to, to, to draw. So I, I assert, I can't remember if it's people colorblind, it's maybe where, where I said that natal alienation is as the kind of signature of enslavement is not something which is generalizable across a whole field of racial oppressions, colonial or otherwise, right? But what I'm starting to think about more recently is that it's not just that natal alienation characterizes racial blackness, right, in law and politics and economy and culture and so forth, but that what the fact of natal alienation, the legal fact of it, the political fact of it, the economic and cultural fact of it, as it were, what it actually demonstrates is not that there is a class, I'm saying class like as in a group, a class of beings excluded from nativity and excluded from kinship and excluded from genealogy and so forth and so on. But that what that exclusion demonstrates is the untenability of kinship as such, of genealogy as such, as any natal occasion whatsoever. So what interests me maybe even more so now than than my earlier attempt to try to demonstrate singularity, right, and to sort of like break out of the people of color subsumption, right, is the ways in which an attention to natal alienation in this way actually might make possible deracination in the most universal sense for everything, right? Not just saying we suffer from deracination in ways that you don't, and so deal with that, right? That starts a conversation. But what I'm interested in is how we are deracinated, and you can be too. <laughs> I'm not sure how many other people hear that as good news, but I do. I've been trying to you know, understand this line since I first heard it uh, from Daniel Coluciello Barber, who first told me about it. And I don't know that I can articulate why this makes me feel better, or even if the term feel better really gets at what I'm trying to say about it. But I felt like as I'm trying to think through what it means to be alienated from this past and to feel sort of unmoored from a people or, or even just a family in general, that there's something about that unmooring that is positive or productive or, or even utterly destroying, but in a way that uh, at least destroys my world uh, in ways that is good. Anyway, I don't know if this uh, makes sense to anyone. No, it's sort of a personal turn. And I'm not trying to, you know do psychoanalysis in front of you or, or something like that. I, I just uh, think that part of what has always attracted me to theory is how it kind of connects up with the lived reality of, of my life, um, other people's lives. Um, and so telling the story I did to Josh, um, I think, just made me think of it. And I, I wanted to try to think it through 
at a deeper level, more interesting level maybe. Anyway, so gonna talk to Josh Dubler here. Uh, as we started off, uh, we did this over Skype. Um, the audio quality is pretty good. There's a, a few moments where the Skype uh, sort of starts to garble a little bit. Um, and we start off actually, and there was a video, so that's uh, hopefully gives you some context for our opening lines to each other. I can't recommend highly enough Joshua's book, Down in the Chapel, uh, which is now in paperback. Uh, I use it in a course, and I find it to be just a really remarkable book of ethnography. And if you are interested in prisons and religion, it's a must-have. So, now to Josh. I'd rather I'd rather talk without seeing each other. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool with me. Um, that's I only record the audio anyway. Otherwise, it gets a little buggy. So good. Um, I'd rather not be seen nor see. <laughs> did you just get a haircut? I did get a haircut. Okay. I, that's not why. It's just that I um, I find like talking and looking at the thing to be just hard. Yeah. Yeah. Hard. Um, it came back on again. So just hit the. I just turned it on so I could show off my haircut. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. <laughs> I see. My hairline. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, um, so what's up? Uh, uh, on this side, not much. Just I'm um, trying to survive this semester. It's it's a little rougher than last semester. I find that um, I don't know if it's our culture here or what, but the spring semester is always a little bit slow to get them engaged, and then one of my classes that. I've taught twice before and have had really good success with I'm I'm like every class just pulling teeth and it's just it gets draining after a while no one tells you about that part of this um, you know it's you yeah feel, you feel rejected um, <laughs> I feel so are we already on are we started we started yeah I mean I uh, it starts and then I can always add it in where we actually start no 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 I, I like it let's just be organic um I'm always really sensitive and feel, re feel uh, not rejected. I, at the beginning of the semester, I waste many weekends um, like beating myself up over um, missed opportunities and like obscene presumptuousnesses. <laughs> um, like, yeah, you know, not just like playing at too high a level and it being exclusive or something. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but then I, I cease to... I cease to self-recriminate as the semester goes on, but um, I just think that that experience of pulling teeth is is horrible. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I, you know, sorry. No, go ahead. I just started doing something. So, like, I always have my students um, write blog posts so that I have them like on record with something, and I can kind of like draw them out. But I started doing something last semester. Um, that was like struck me as like wildly radical, although it's entirely conventional. But I just call on students like by their name. Yeah. And uh, I know that's like a, te a a tool that teachers have used since the Stone Age. <laughs> but here, especially, like it's I'm not in the Northeast Corridor culture, and and student and I, student silence, like being unprepared and disengaged, is like one of the things it can mean. But in a lot of kids' cases, I think it's like they're just not confident and they don't feel entitled to their opinion. Yeah, no, I think that's part of it. It's like a weird mix with this, uh, I almost said this generation, 
which makes me uh, feel very old. But, you know, it's a weird mix with the students I have anyway, where they seem to be very confident with their opinions in their journals that they have to write, like like the opinion that this book is stupid or whatever. Um, and yet, when it comes to actually trying to have a conversation, they, they lose all confidence. It's a, I don't know, it's a weird, it's a weird effect of uh, maybe, maybe uh, online mm-hmm. forms of discourse or something like that. Um, if I have to make up random reasons, uh, that, that would seem to be the culprit. But uh, I did that the other day where I started calling on them and um, a person who's usually very shy after I asked her to read the question that was in her journal, she, she started engaging in the class. It was like she just needed that um, approval or something before she could feel okay to speak. But, um, yeah. 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 Approval or terror or whatever it is. So Whatever it is, conducive to speech. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> so most of the people who will be listening to this uh, probably won't know where you're teaching at. Um, so you're uh, at Rochester. I'm at the University of Rochester, which is in Rochester, New York. Okay. And, and you're in the Department of Religion there, right? It actually, for um, for his, for reasons of historical uh, peculiarity, um, it's a Department of Religion and Classics. So it was a religion department that somewhere, I think, in the 80s acquired a, uh, a classics appendage. Oh, okay. Um, that, that, sounds, that sounds doable. Um, do you guys have many majors or anything like that? Um, yeah, I think we have a good number of majors, not as many as we used to. There, we have a number of teachers in our department who are really beloved at this institution, um, and they used to pull in a lot, a lot of students, and like everywhere else, enrollment in the humanities is down, but in the religion track, I think we, we usually have like a dozen to 16 majors a year, maybe. Oh, that's good. It's a guess. Yeah. Um, and... Basically, with with this, I like to kind of start talking about uh, uh, people's work, and then we'll, we'll kind of move through your life and all, and all that. But it, you know, I, I came across you sort of by accident. Um, you know, we had a guy coming here to speak who had written a book on the Occupy movement. Uh, does that does that ring a bell? Uh, a journalist out of New is this, York. Is this Scott Korb? Yeah, Scott Korb uh, was speaking here, and he had a. Um, a reader's copy of your book before it was even published and, and recommended it. And so I picked it up, but, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your book and I, I, I use it to organize a whole class here, uh, where I teach. Um, and so I thought, um, I, I'd like to hear you kind of talk about your book. I, I'm sure you've had to do this a couple of times. I've seen you on, um, on C-SPAN, um, talking, doing like an author's talk. So if you could just summarize the, the book, um, and then we'll, we'll kind of talk about what, cause you to write it. Sure, sure. Um, uh, hopefully before too long I can steer the conversation to um, uh, matters of, of, uh, of momentous importance and um, um, from the present day. Okay. Uh, uh, just because I have, I'm just overflowing with really strong opinions about things these days. But uh, my book is, um, is called uh, Down in the Chapel um, the subtitle is Religious Life in an American Prison, and it is a narrative ethnography that takes place in the chapel of Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution at Greaterford. Um, Greaterford is a, uh, an old kind of big house-ish prison, um, opens around 1930, houses somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 men. 
um, and uh, over the course of any given week, um, members of 12 or 13 officially recognized um, religious denominations come down and share this space, the chapel, where they have worship services and studies and musical group rehearsals. And so that provides the frame uh, of the narrative. The, the narrative takes place over the course of one week. It is one real week's time, and the week in question was in January 2006. And, uh, and that's so it's structured seven chapters, one chapter for each day of that week. Um, the central characters in the book largely are drawn from the men who work in the chapel. There are five chaplains who work in the, in the chapel and two correctional officers and um, 15 uh, prisoners who work in the chapel as um, clerks and janitors. And the central characters are, are largely uh, drawn from the ranks of, of those men. Um, and so before we kind of move on to uh, the, the, the topics of the day, um, what, what caused you to write about prisons? I mean, this is a topic of the day, but what, yeah, what caused yeah. you to write about that? Yeah, I didn't mean to be like too, dis you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, no, no, no. I'm animated about like, yeah, I'm just, I just spent a class uh, talking about what happened in North Carolina and, and it just, uh, North Carolina being the shooting of these three uh, uh, young Muslims uh, yesterday and, and I just, um, anyway, but we'll get there or we won't. But uh, um, what drew me to write about the book, um, religion and prison, so I don't know about you, but as far as the religion piece, um, I think I say this in the book, that uh, the study of religion as a, as a, as a field uh, populated disproportionately by people with an emphatic ambivalence toward the tradition of their upbringing, mm -hmm. or at the very least, an emphatic ambivalence during the years where one kind of chooses a, a profession. So that was true in my case, um, raised an observant Jew, studied religion as an undergrad at Wesleyan in Connecticut. Um, and was animated by those kinds of questions. Um, Prince, it's the um, you know the the moral catastrophe that is criminal justice in America is sort of the closest thing uh, in this world that I have to a vocation. Um, and I think that you know I was raised by kind of leftist progressives, and you know I came of age at precisely this moment, the the moment that 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 we call like you know the emergence of mass incarceration. Uh, I was born in 1974, and between the time when I'm born and and today, you know the American prison population explodes over 600 uh, percent. And uh, um, my mother, when I was a kid, uh, she's a bioethicist, but she had lots of jobs, and among them she worked at Rikers Island. And so I just kind of was tuned into those kinds of issues, um, and so you know I went to uh, I went to graduate school to kind of combine those interests. So, um, uh, would you say you're kind of a decarcerationist? Is is that what you're hoping your book kind of enters a conversation about? Yeah, you know my my book is uh, is in ser in service to many different masters. Um, it's trying to do a lot of different things, both personally and disciplinarily and politically. But um, yeah, I, I certainly um, uh, I would go further than a, a, a decarcerationist. I mean, certainly that um, I, I would I would identify as an as an abolitionist. I think, even if I'm not exactly sure what the content of that identification means. But yeah, I, I would I would hope um, that my book 
uh, at that level could contribute um, in whatever kind of little way that it might to what seems to be the growing public awareness that the ways that we do criminal justice in this country are incredibly brutal and incredibly wasteful and prey upon certain populations um, and have really uncomfortable continuities with some of the um, founding and undigested um, uh, proclivities in our country that come out of slavery and Jim Crow and, and uh, you know, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, that comes out in 2009, um, you know, really accomplishes a lot to... Uh, to kind of reframe American criminal justice within that kind of trajectory. So uh, an abolitionist um, uh, really, I, I guess it kind of stands in for this desire to, to have something radically different than what we have for, for criminal justice uh, in this country. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, when I teach your book, one of the things the students um, who are a little bit resistant to that kind of notion bring up is, while you humanize many of the men in the chapel, um, you know, a few of them are, are murderers who are kind of admitted to committing these great acts of violence. Um, so I'm just curious what, what, your, uh, what your response is to people who, who always point to this extreme violence um, of individuals uh, when talking about prisons. Right. I mean, I would say more that um, the, the, the chapel is a pretty good job uh, I mean, that's relative uh, at Greaterford. You know, you make between, at least in 2006, between 19 and 41 cents an hour. But it's a job where you have a, a fair amount of leeway and, and time to pursue uh, your own kind of interests. Um, so especially if you're a person who has religious commitments, um, it's, it's, a, it's a good job to want to have. So the men who end up with that job are men who have some kind of sway in the prison and that means that there are men who are uh, among the quarter of people who live at Greaterford who are serving life in Pennsylvania. Life is life without the possibility of parole. And so um, all of them are in prison for homicide. I mean, maybe there's one or two uh, of the central characters in the book about whom that's not true. But almost everyone in the book uh, is there for homicide. Um, you know, I, I went into the book um, with a kind of easy, um, an easy uninterest in the crimes for which the men who are in the in Greaterford are there. Um, that easy uninterest was difficult to sustain. I mean, that that uninterest is is political in its in its um, point of departure, right? Because by our current discourse and thinking about crime. We essentialize people on the basis of their action, uh, the worst thing that they've done in the time that they've been on the planet, or I should say we essentialize certain kinds of people who fall prey to the criminal justice system on the basis of those actions. There, there are other kinds of people uh, who get to murder or get to facilitate the death of others uh, who enjoy much more social power and they don't necessarily get tarred by that brush. So I went in um, you know, with an active lack of interest in that issue, and of course, it turns out that the men in, at Greaterford are within those very same discourses, so their crimes uh, matter to them tremendously, and most of them, uh, who I got to know well, eventually want to talk about their crime, and they want me to know, uh, uh, and by extension, they want the reader to know either that they did it and they take responsibility, 
or that they didn't do it. Um, and, uh, and so clearly like the, the fact of their crime is, is something that haunts them, um, in many, many ways, um, both in terms of being a precondition for the ongoing containment of their bodies and also for many of them, you know, wrestling with, uh, mistakes they've made and harms they have done and how they can, they can be better people. Um, but in response to that kind of general question or the, the kind of that kind of, you know, uh, but these men are killers, you know, I would just say, um, I'm much more preoccupied, uh, as an American citizen, uh, I, I am much more preoccupied with the violence, uh, and harm that I am a party to than with the violence and harm that others have inflicted. Um, and so, yeah, in the case of the central characters of the book, um, they destroyed lives. They, they, they ended lives, or in, you know, in some cases, men, uh, they, were, they were convicted of crimes that they claimed they didn't do. Um, and those, you know, even if the crimes were in the 1970s, as is true of many of them, um, they did terrible things um, that can never be undone. But um, I'm more interested in the ways that that kind of specter of, of, of terribleness is mobilized to justify the um, unleashing of tremendous amounts of state violence against certain populations, um, both in the forms of incarceration and uh, in, you know, in the ways that, um, that, that policing uh, exerts violence and terrorizes certain populations. So that's much more my preoccupation um, because that's the one that I'm on the hook for. That's the one that we are doing. And uh, so that's how I would respond to that objection. Um, yes, I mean, I, I remember when you came and spoke to my class, you talked a little bit about culpability and you were thinking along with some of the stuff that Arendt had written at the time. So, I mean, this is kind of what you're you're referencing here in terms of the violence that you are a party to, right? That's probably right. Like, if I had to think about, like, who is it that, right? I mean, you know, yeah, I, I think that um, that book, uh, you know, Eichmann in Jerusalem in particular, um, which Arendt is, you know, herself is really adamant. She, she really rejects the kind of glib um, universalization of, of, of Eichmann as some kind of default human condition. And that's important to think that, you know, to certainly to protect historical particularity and see Nazi Germany as its own case. But, you know, I think it's, it's certainly the case that that uh, each of us who find ourselves uh, in a culture um, are party to certain kinds of systemic injustices. Um, uh, perhaps the the white men of us uh, uh, more 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 obviously. Um, and citizenship, it would seem to me, um, entails um, both the re the reflection on the ways that we are um, always already enlisted in certain kinds of domination, and then the concerted effort to um, to try to ameliorate those systems. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. How did you, how did you get there? So like, how did, I don't know if I'm, I, don't, I hesitate. I don't know if it was our rent that got me there. Um, I, I, how I think did, you were teaching her at the time or something. Yeah, but how did you like, how did you get, get by that, that notion of citizenship, like in your experience, right? I assume we share a certain kind of politics. Like how did you, I've been thinking actually about this in reference to, um, uh, like I was in the barricades and during the, what meager kind of Black Lives Matter protest that we had here in Rochester, 
um, I was side by side with a student of mine who actually went to the same Jewish day school that I went to. He's still quite observant. He wears a kippah. And we got into a series of conversations about like how much our politics was informed by our Jewish by our Jewish upbringing. And I didn't get very far. I still want to, I want to figure that out. But how do you get by a kind of, um, uh, I don't know if you would, I don't know, like a kind of radical politics or, or what did you read or what did you see or what did that, that kind of, that made you who you are? Uh, well, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it just cause I want this to, to be about you, but it's a fair question. Uh, I, you know, I, I, for a long time, I thought I was raised this way. And then when the election of uh, Obama happened, uh, suddenly my family's uh, blatant racism emerged on Facebook. And so um, I was very shocked by that. Uh, and my mother, you know, um, is a, a very caring person, um, but she doesn't have a strong structural analysis of this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she's, she dropped out of high school. Um, was going to go back before she got pregnant with me and did a GED and, um, you know, she's had a successful life, but kind of working, um, in, uh, non-professional areas until she became a minister. Um, and I, you know, I think maybe she imparted some kind of empathy. Um, I remember my dad, uh, who I got, um, um, estranged from, uh, you know, he was a fuck the police guy, uh, my whole life. And I have a very vivid memory. Uh, it's like one of my first memories actually of, um, uh, watching him get beat up by four cops in our living room, uh, cause his, uh, second wife and he had had a kind of argument and, uh, she wanted to leave and he took the spark plugs out of the car. So she called the police. Um, and you know, I, he probably was a kind of violent guy. I'm not entirely sure. It's been a long time since we've talked. Mm. Um, but yeah, these four cops just uh, beating the shit out of him in front of me. Um, and I have this memory of the uh, the scuff marks on the on the linoleum um, where like they had been kind of tussling. Um, but you know, I think actually, if I had to figure it out, it's uh, for me. It it goes back to when I was five and I was given a pair of handcuffs by a security guard in our housing complex and I used them to handcuff a kid to the railing. Um, and, uh, I remember feeling like a lot of power <laughs> mm -hmm. in that moment. And then, and I don't know, in my mind, this went on for hours, but it was probably like 10 minutes or something. Cause you know how memory and childhood, uh, distort these sorts of things. Um, but I remember the kid just started like, like bawling and, um, at some point I just realized how awful what I was doing was. Mm. Um, and I think maybe that might be the moment that, um, you know, I, I became very aware of the capacity for, for violence and, and doing bad things. And it was that more than, you know, religion came later in our house and, uh, uh, politics for me didn't come until, um, uh, later, obviously. Um, and even then when I first got interested in politics, I, you know, I was like a big fan of the democratic party in eighth grade. Cause I didn't have friends and I read time magazine. Um, mm -hmm. so I guess that's, you know, like, uh, knowing at five years old that I was, uh, capable of being a Nazi, I think. Right. Right. So the, and so it was like that. So like it was his, your, your friend's suffering, and then an attendant realization of of what you were doing and and then that made you 
you didn't want to do that again. I think so. Yeah, and I haven't done that <laughs> again. Um, that, uh, in our yeah, in our rents framework, that's precisely what makes you not a Nazi, because you know, I mean, and this is where I don't know exactly if I if I see it her way, but you know, she says that like for most of us, like in default citizenship, like you have to follow the law, and then you have the temptation to break the law and you have to resist the temptation. Whereas like for Eichmann and those folks, you know, that the temptation was to, uh, the, the temptation was to break the law in the direction of good. Hmm. And that what they began practice that was resisting that temptation. So you, you, but you felt the temptation toward goodness, like the pang of, of the wrongness of inflicting suffering and you heeded it. You heated it. It's a very optimistic story about what human beings are capable of, right? Because mm -hmm. it was just merely this kind of encounter with the other and the suffering of the other that allowed you to say, shit, like, I don't want to be doing this. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of what it comes down to, I think. Um, that's like downright Levinasian or something. <laughs> well, good. Uh, maybe. Um, well, I mean... You know, kind of to continue this and, and maybe move it towards um, talking about uh, what, what's recently happened. You know, you, you kept saying that like certain populations are subject to this state violence. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think we're, we're speaking maybe euphemistically here, but we know what that means. It means black populations in America and poor populations. Am I, am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I guess in the West Coast, also, uh, Latinos and Latinas are, are targeted disproportionately um, as well. And I would say I would say disproportionately like, you know, young and male, mm -hmm. um, but not, you know, obviously not exclusively. But uh, um, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how race and class plays a role in in how you see like uh, what happened um, uh, recently in South Carolina, or was it North Carolina? Carolina. Yeah. Okay. Um, what 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 happened there? Um, I mean, you use the phrase um, in in characterizing your own uh, orientation, maybe in contradistinction to your family, what uh, of structural analysis, right? Yeah. Um, and that's so critical. Because I feel as though that's so, it's so frequently missing. And what really agitates me in, when I'm plugged into the rage machine of social media mm -hmm. is the ways that both sides of the discourse, which is to say like the nominally dominant discourse, which I see reflected only polemically in my feed, and the purportedly reparative righteous discourse of my like-minded fellow travelers so easily drift away from structural analysis. And so, I mean, this is the way in which um, too easily um, uh, it, would, it seemed to me that like our fellow travelers come to see justice as George Zimmerman should go to prison forever too. Yeah. Darren Wilson should go to prison forever too, right? And um, and to me, that's like yes. There's reason to think like Darren Wilson is a particular kind of murderer, mm -hmm. and the thing that makes 
his violence illegible qua violence is that he's dressed in the uniform of the state mm -hmm. and pursuant to Weber's old saw about the nation state being that which monopolizes the legitimate use of violence, um, there are too many people in this country who uh, are willing to, to justify or license whatever force he uses when he's wearing that uniform. But by the same token, a vision of justice that merely seeks to pluck out those of the boys in blue who overstep their bounds and, and act for because of you know racist or whatever kinds of reasons, and then to put them in prison, and uncritically then to use the agencies and, and repressive apparatuses of the state um, as if that somehow solves anything. Um, that really agitates me. That really agitates me. And so, like, what, 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 what has been agitating me about um, in, in the first 24 hours, I mean, there's so much that's agitating me about North Carolina and just the, the picture of those three, of those three kids. I mean, they seem like beautiful people and it's so desperate and, 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 and pathetic and stupid and horrible that they were murdered. Um, but like here, it seems like the impulses of those on the left, like are really weird and misguided and, and, and almost willfully oblivious to the problems of structure because like, yes, like, like let's assume that somewhere in this man's uh, 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 this man's capacity to murder them is something like white supremacy and something like Islamophobia. Like I'm willing to concede that, but um, so but it seems like the kind of default reaction of of like the people with whom I'm likely to organize or eat dinner with is that like. It's very important that we isolate and identify his, his motivation as explicitly anti-Islamic. And somehow, by calling it a hate crime, um, that does some kind of important work. And it, and it is weird that somehow, like, the, to, for it to be seen as a hate crime is to somehow endow their deaths with meaning... Whereas if he's just some jerk who's acted without an explicitly racist or anti-Semitic motivation, then it's almost like we're deprived something. And I find that super weird. And I find it especially weird because like he is not like he is, uh, let's assume like he profits off whiteness. Let's assume that because he's white, um, his wife gets to interview, gets to be interviewed and, and, and gets to kind of frame what it is that motivated him. Uh, let's assume that because he's white, he then becomes eligible for mental illness as a kind of mitigating factor in a way that he probably wouldn't if he was black or brown. But nonetheless, I'm guessing just from the look of this guy, like this guy is like not an empowered subject. This man is not invested in like state power. You know what I mean? So like the the deaths of of I, I know that people are wearing like Muslim Lives Matter shirts, but like the deaths of these people is very, very different from the, the deaths of a, of, of a Mike Brown or, or, or an Eric Garner who are actually who are murdered within the context of the kinds of systemic persecutions that 
take place in Staten Island, New York, and Ferguson, Missouri, and so many other places that belong to a kind of broken windows policing culture in which I think the stat was in the year 2013 or whatever, of the 11,000 residents in Ferguson, there were 29,000 warrants issued. And in the course of this kind of predatory policing, you know, occasionally... Um, uh, not necessarily, you know, occasionally, uh, you know, a young black man's going to be murdered. And it doesn't require any kind of explicit um, racism on Darren Wilson's part. Darren Wilson is, is a, a um, you know, he's, a, I don't want to say a cog in a machine as if he has no agency and if there's no moral culpability there, but he's operating within that system. Whereas this guy in North Carolina, um, uh, he's just some fucking asshole. You know, that, that's a real difference. But anyway, I just, like, prattled on forever. What do you think about all this stuff? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I, I think you're going you're gonna to upset some people with that um, just because the way some of these debates play out on social media requires a kind of, in part just because there's 140 characters on Twitter and, and people's attention span is so low that it requires these sorts of uh, um, very dualistic, very simplistic uh, accounts rather than deeper analyses. But I think some of what you're saying there is um, really right. And I just kind of want to see if I can unpack a little bit of it and see if we can um, think about how the structural racism that may have allowed for him to, to murder these three um, Muslims who are in a very different power differential, uh, a very different relationship to, to power in the wider society than... Uh, you know, a, a Trayvon Martin or, or um, um, Mike Brown. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, do, do, you, do you not think that the wider sort of violence committed against uh, Muslims, specifically people who, uh, Muslims in the Middle East, who have a kind of Middle Eastern background, um, by, the, by the war machine of America doesn't play a part in the the feeling like those are bodies that are killable um, for for this guy. I think it. I think it probably does, and I think that like the Bill Mars of the world, you know, like they're not helping anything. But I would still, um, uh, and you know, and there's clearly a a climate um, in which people who are perceived as Muslim right become, become killable in some way. But um, uh, I would distinguish... Um, I would distinguish those who are killed by state actors mm. from those who are not. I mean, so this isn't to say, look, look, I think that the... the, the the public response to what's going on, to what happened in North Carolina, should be discussed. And it should be um, a declaration of the necessity of vigilance um, that we need to uh, stand with and protect our fellow citizens and non citizens who are Muslim or who are, in some cases, merely seen as Muslim. Right, right. Um, that seems right to me. That seems right to me. I yeah. I I just I guess what I guess what my tick is is this. My tick is how easily violence becomes the province of non-state actors. 
and how, and that in fact, when the state actor commits violence as a Darren Wilson does, then like we instantly want to hold him accountable, prosecute him. And in a way like that whitewashes the state again. Yeah. It's a very Christian view of redemption, right? Like, uh, say more. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little, uh, off the top here, but you know, this notion that, um, you have the system, you have like the world, the creation, which is, you know, this carceral state. And um, you, you need to have, you need to sacrifice, you need to sacrifice an incarnation of it to, to redeem right. uh, its very existence. Um, right. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I totally see what you're saying there. And I agree with you that there's um, a kind of incoherence uh, from people who want to see something done in terms of justice uh, especially in relationship to, to Darren Wilson, um, and yet are appealing to the same structure that produces a Darren Wilson to bring that justice. And, and mind you, in the last couple of days, um, there have been uh, police officers uh, indicted, uh, both in New York and then out on the West Coast. And it's clear that that's like a function of the non-indictment of, of Darren Wilson and the cop who, who killed Eric Garner. And that, I suppose, in aggregate is a good thing. And cops uh, who uh, uh, who walk the streets with guns should should understand that, like, if they kill someone, they might be held accountable. That's clearly a good thing. But um, it's just so frustrating to me um, how, and maybe this is like also Christian and the kind of the like the hunger, like the kind of like um, the low hanging availability of kind of of scapegoating as a technique. Um, it's just, it's frustrating to me how, how easily the structural analysis is lost, you know, and how, right, it, like the demonization of the bad guy is as much something that people on the left do as people on the right do. And it's so hard. It's just so, it's just, it's so hard to maintain that kind of, to, to keep that frame. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious. This so so you're kind of suggesting that the the state actor is a big part of uh, what makes it so horrific. Um, and I mean, obviously the the sort of the sort of state racism where Darren Wilson um, doesn't have to be explicitly racist, but like the state is racist for him in that kind of uh, to play off that kind of Zizek joke about the, the Buddhist wheel of prayer that prays for the person. Like they just put it in and it just does it for them. So the person doesn't actually have to believe, you know, Darren Wilson doesn't have to be racist because he lives in a racist world that is structured by that racism. Um, As is true of all of us, yes. but it's not all of us. Um, are positioned within that system that in a way that is that our actions are going to result directly in the death of young black men but go on so what what about um like a george zimmerman uh these kind of non-state actors who do participate in that um and are are also coded differently by the wider society so like george zimmerman was given the benefit of the doubt by so many people i mean it's so interesting right because like george zimmerman it was the function of of what of it, like George Zimmerman only acquired whiteness through this encounter. Yeah. Right. That's what was so wild about that, that both again, like the, to, to look at it dialectically, both like the, you know, the, um, I don't want to, I think that one was, was, you know, I don't want to say the dominant, but both those who like thought that he was acting righteously, um, uh, uh, against the thug and those who thought that he was a murderer, um, uh, uh, 
and needed to be brought to justice, um, came to see him as white in a way mm-hmm. um, because of that encounter. But what was your question or comment? I just I just lost it. I'm just wondering how those non-state actors who commit this violence, if uh, like someone like like him getting off and profiting, becoming a millionaire essentially from this murder, uh, how how that kind of affects your... I don't know, man. Help me think this out, right? Because like on the one hand, so it's like, okay, you can imagine a just war, right? Like it's possible to imagine a just war. And clearly like, you know, it was really good. We sent our boys like to Europe to fight the na- fight the Nazis like yeah. really like thank god for that right uh, but yeah. like until until proven otherwise my job as an american citizen it would seem would be to stand up when it, when when it when the war machine starts rattling my job is to stand up and say no mm. right i could be wrong but like until proven otherwise and frankly like so many on the left were like, like, seemed really certain that Libya was a terrible. I wasn't sure about anyway, you know. It, but it, until proven otherwise, like, we should say no, okay. right? Like, okay. militarism is n- is not the route to humanitarian intervention. And where the American military, where, where America is acting militarily, then like we we err on the side of saying no. Now, do we need to be committed isolationists um, in order to be that way? No. Do we need to be committed pacifists in order to be that way? No. But I think, like, in practice, we should proceed as if we are both isolation, well, pacifists, if not isolationists, anti-military interventionists, right? Uh-huh. So now, can that logic be carried through to incarceration? I don't think so, but I'm pretty close to something like that. I'm pretty close to saying, like, you know, can it really, can it really be the case that whatever social ill it is that ails us, that, that, that prisons are the solution to that problem, that, that passing laws that are going to uh, increase um, sentences for, uh, for people who, 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 people who target Muslims or people who target gays, that, that, that we're going to put them away for, for an even longer time. Can that really be ameliorative or be cutting off our nose despite our face in pursuing those kind of those kind of carceral policies in the name of, of justice. My instinct is is to go in that direction. So maybe that just means that I'm doomed to a kind of incoherence when a when a when a when a George Zimmerman or or a Darren Wilson comes around, right? Because it's obviously unacceptable that those men should walk. It's unacceptable. And it's obviously the fact that like someone like Wilson doesn't even get indicted. It belongs not only to the logic, but that lack of accountability. It underwrites the future murder of young black men, right? So it's 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 there's something short-sighted and stupid and incoherent in my position. And yet my kind of visceral position is precisely to like stand up and say, like, no, 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 no. This can't be an effective means. I, I, so I have kind of mixed feelings about this, um, as I kind of suspect you do, just in, as as you're kind of thinking through it uh, here. Yeah. But to kind of give you an example where I think what you're saying is absolutely right, you know, the, have you read about that um, that uh, teenager in Oakland um, who set um, a, a person on fire and it was an accident? They were like kind of playing a joke, but uh, uh, he got charged. They were trying to charge it as a hate crime, and this person. Um, 
I'm trying to get my pronouns correct here, uh, and I, I can't remember all the details of the story, but this person isn't uh, uh, trans. They're, they're sort of agender. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, you know, to some people that might present as, as trans. Um, have, have you read about this story? That's not true. It's not ringing any bells, no. Oh, uh, so it's um, – I'd I recommend looking at it. I think it sort of supports your, your, your point, but it happened on a city bus in Oakland, and these kids um, – uh, set this person's uh, skirt on fire and they were very badly burned. Mm. Um, and uh, the prosecutor, the, the, the DA, um, wanted to charge the, the child with a hate crime. Um, and lots of um, gay, lesbian, and trans rights people were, were, were really against that. The, mm-hmm. the, the parents of the person who was burned and the person who was burned were against it. Um, it's a really tragic story because like something something was done wrong here, but it's a it's a poor black kid um, who is bearing the brunt of it. And the DA essentially didn't listen to anyone. And if I remember right, um, there was supposed to be a deal that was more humane to uh, this kid, and they pulled it at the last minute. So he's probably not going to get out of jail well until adulthood. Um, you know, not going to go to college, all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's, it's just fucking tragic. Like, what do you, what do you do in this situation? Like something was clearly done wrong. Something that is tied into sorts of, um, maybe homophobia. And and there's all these transcripts with cops where they're, 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 uh, interrogating this kid. And, and, you know, he says like, he's not homophobic, but he doesn't feel comfortable around gay people. And so lots of people read that as homophobic and, and that kind of outrage machine wants to see, something something extracted from this person exactly something wrong. extracted yeah um something extracted so what do you uh so what do we do <laughs> i mean i i don't know i mean i mean it's but it's like it's a tactical question i think i mean the like what do we do i mean i guess it's insufficient, but as like a starting point, like we make the kind of noise I'm trying to make, right, or, or something. You know, I I don't know. I mean, um, well, so this kind of plea for thinking is partly what I'm hearing. Uh, thinking, no, man. Like it's beyond thinking. Okay. I mean, that's what's so exciting. I mean, that's why, like, that's why Black Lives Matter is is amazing. You know, it's like, um, it's not just thinking, it's, uh, it's engaging in like a whole set of practices that, that call into question and destabilize the status quo. I mean, think, uh, I mean, and I guess our, you know, the stuff we do in the classroom can contribute, can contribute, sure. Um, but I think we need a more robust set of practices too. Um, and I guess so what you want to be is like, it's actually, this is where I really like living in a town like Rochester, New York, where, um, the number of players is few enough that it's, it's possible to track. And like, you know, I know all the principals who are in SDS on campus and like, I organize with like Jewish, Jewish voices for peace in town. And, and I guess it's just about trying to make sure that certain things are, are included as part of the agenda. So, so I think that's that's really interesting. It, it still opens up to like a huge problem of of the relationship between intellectuals and uh, like people outside of the university who are also intellectuals but engaged in activist work and whatever. Um, 
you know, because I when I go to th- things here in Philly, but I I rarely feel like my voice uh, should matter, or or I, I rarely feel like in those the kind of structures of those organizations that you know there's a an element of if I start talking, um, there's a potential problem there in terms of reinscribing all sorts of. Uh, all sorts of problems around whiteness and uh, coalition building that ends up overdetermining it as, uh, you know, led by whites or, or whatever. Um, I share I share a same kind of um, delicate, like, reticence or like a, a will to be somehow peripheral. So I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, have you come across this with, with prison activists where they, you know, they're like, it's nice that you, you've read all these books and done all this research, but shut up or, or or anything like that or is it no, open? i mean i'm not like um when i was in philly i organized with decarcerate pa you know them they're great yeah yeah they're great and they were just fledgling at the time and uh i was pretty quiet i was pretty quiet when i went to those meetings and i was pretty quiet when i went to those demonstrations and um in general um uh my my I would say my bark is stronger than my bite, but my bark is pretty quiet. You know, I mostly just like annoy, you know, I mostly just, uh, um, it's my, my partner, my wife who, <laughs> um, so I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I'm not, I mean, I really like, so the SDS, uh, I don't know if SDS is, is like prominent LaSalle, um you know uh there's lots of things that are great about my institution but um students are pretty apolitical there's an extraordinary so the students here are generally apolitical too but there's an extraordinary cadre of of leadership uh in sds and then also uh in uh black-led uh organization of recent graduates and um and they're great, and they they make me feel so good about the future. And I just like I just I lo- I just have so much hope for for this generation. And mostly, I feel like we just uh, the, those of us who are older just need to like die off. But uh, um, but I just tell them like you know, let me know when you need when I when when it's my time to go to jail. You know, I just, and I don't try to like I you know it's it's easy to see too because for me the dominant issue there is not my whiteness over and against their um their coloredness and and most of the leadership of the SDS are, are students of color but it's more about age and like you know that's the one of the beautiful object lessons of of Ferguson um and then the way that played out with those simultaneous marches on whatever it was November 9th I think it was where Sharpton had his march in Washington which was like some kind of you know bullshit nostalgia exercise for the 60s and meanwhile like two twenty-something uh, black women based in New York organized this uh, this 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 uh, action where like they took uh, all the highways in Manhattan, you know. And um, it was it's I think you know there, you read a lot of pieces you saw you know just like how frigging young King and those people were, yeah. And and like the ways that the leadership, the the geniuses in Ferguson who like who began to build this this better world that we're gonna make. Um, you know, it's they called attention to the fact that it's that it's not. You know, it's leadership needs to be in their twenties. That's who it is, and um, and they're they're damn right about that. You know, so I think our job is especially you know as college professors is um, I'm not you know I have my opinions. Um, 
I'm, I make them clear, but mostly I just let them know that they have my support and if and when um, somehow they need institutional sanction or support, they should come to me and, and uh, I'll do whatever I can. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was, I was tempted to ask you about this uh, little tempest in a teapot that broke out on Twitter over, uh, do you know Molly Crabapple? So, okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you so, know about this? So, okay, so Molly Crab. <laughs> so, okay, first of all, let me say about the, I've not, I'm, I'm, I'm producing this art project this week, and so I haven't been on Twitter at all this week, so I, I was really just talking about my Facebook feed with respect to what was going on in North Carolina. I have no idea what's been going on, on Twitter, but okay, so I used to follow Molly Crabapple, and then I stopped following Molly Crabapple, mostly because she made me feel, yep, like, old and ugly, but, uh, but, um, but told you, so she... People have been going after her because of some dumb tweet where she said that she didn't care if something really happened or not. Or what was this about? No, no, no. It's uh, she. I mean, you know, there's other other issues uh, with her work, um, which I'm really not a fan of sort of the um, and this is not a popular position that I hold, but I, I just sort of hold it very vehemently. Um, but I'm not a, I'm not a fan of like the op edification of, of intellectual labor. Um, I guess it's good that people are getting yeah. paid for it, but, yeah. um, you know, like there's, I, I'm probably shouldn't name names, but there's a lot of people who I think, um, see, a, a career in writing, um, sort of hackneyed, um, uh, borrowed theory, um, in slightly more accessible slash, uh, Fox news, MSNBC ways where, you know, it's, it's about kind of creating, it's about creating, uh, uh, righteousness rather than action. And it's about creating, um, being right over, uh, seeing the reality of being complicit in a lot of this shit that as you're trying to battle it at the same time, yeah. um, you know, and, and I share, I share that suspicion. And and that's one of my neg like I, I'm on Twitter but I don't tweet and mm. and and I and part of me wishes that I was capable of participation but I yeah I I'm I'm I have such a cynical orientation towards towards social sort towards symbolic capital accumulation mm -hmm. and and anyway but uh, yeah and and like the production of righteousness rather than action but so anyway so how does Crab Apple uh, oh so she uh, she did this um, video. Uh, about broken windows policing, yeah, and and someone sent it to uh, uh, Loic uh, Wakant, uh, yeah, and um, <laughs> and in sort of typical French academic asshole style, he just sent her an email unsolicited, giving a grade and a critique of her video, um, and then there's some other activists who claim that he's anti-black and all this other stuff. So it's this sort of um, like, I mean, you know, sure, I, I know plenty of assholes in academia, um, and especially coming out of the, I, you know, I studied in France for a, a tiny bit, and there is a kind of um, bluntness that uh, does not translate into American culture very well at all. Um, but, you know, kind of this sort of smear campaign is now going on about his work, which I think is really valuable, and I think actually shows a lot of the racial components of, of policing. Because he was because he condescended toward her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but if you haven't if you haven't seen this, you know it's not. I mean, it's I a watched... wider question about the relationship between sort of um, these public figures who get names because they have uh, 
this righteousness production machine <laughs> behind them. And then the, the position of very privileged academics who while privileged also are producing, I think important work for, to, to be part of uh, those discussions that are happening in activist communities as well. Um, not overdetermine them in any way, but like it has a role to play. Yeah. I mean, she's a force of nature and she's indefatigable and she's so productive and I watched that video and or I watched part of it and like yeah there was some stuff that just seemed plain wrong but like you know I, I don't do enough to like hate on the people who do stuff you know it's yeah. kind of my attitude I mean my my main issue is that I think it's sort of rich to uh to 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 bring out these tropes like anti-blackness um in defense of someone who is like an out friend with a white supremacist um do you know this weed oh, guy weave. yeah that, i mean look look so this is all stuff that like i i try to my like my big my biggest ethical aspiration in life is to spend less time online okay so i know way too much about this but like weave is a troll like i have no i have no interest in weave except that it seems weird to me when here's a person who's who's like primary way of being in the world is trolling so then he like gets a swastika tattoo and people think that that somehow that betrays his like true essence like i've i, I really i don't know that it betrays it i think i think he's coming out of this um this this sort of bizarre silicon valley ideology that you also find in the ukraine uh, amongst this kind of neo-traditionalist stuff uh, that's trying to connect up with technology. So the, the, do you know what I'm talking about? This like neo-reactionary uh, techno uh, uh, fascism stuff, basically, or techno medievalism even uh -huh. where, where there, uh, you know, there's the people in Silicon Valley who are like all trying to get the singularity to come. Um, but there's also people in like the Ukraine who think that, they're part of this master race and that they're going to be able to use computers to create um, pure language and, and all this other weird uh, like stuff that would be in a Hellboy comic um, uh, uh, as like a, you I, know, like an I'm, interesting occult storyline or something like like people are actually pursuing that. And I, I find it really bizarre because they're really rich people. They're yeah. like really like uh, privileged people um, and the actual material and political ideology that's going to arise out of this weirdness i think it's pretty horrifying uh -huh. um, so i guess that's my issue is that i i just don't think that it's but i mean was the phenomenon so like essentially was there like um uh the phenomenon in question vis-a-vis -vis the molly crab apple thing was just a kind of mob that went after waquant uh i mean you know i, I don't know want to use the word mob but like you know uh yeah yeah like uh just normal sort of um sort of stuff about like if you're an asshole your work doesn't matter uh right. and right. especially like privileged academics and um you know i do think there's a pretty big difference between someone at berkeley and someone like myself but um uh i i think it's i was i was trying to ask a question just about like the role of of academics and intellectuals in a culture that's still imbricated in anti-intellectualism and, and that sort of uh those sorts of problems uh, that come up from right that. i mean i guess i mean so like who else is going to call attention to i mean not necessarily like a paid academic but like just wanting to attend to structure and not personality is you know it's one of the as you know it's one of the like 
three or four things we have to contribute to the conversation. And I guess we just try to contribute it the best we can uh, because the conversation is more impoverished without it. I'm not a big, like, my impact on the like my impact on the world is minimal enough that I I don't worry so much that I'm going to be exerting too much influence. I mean, like, and obviously in the writing of my book, I was I tried to be really, 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 really careful about doing harm to the men who were so generous with me at Greaterford, and um, and so that's I you know I take that kind of thing very seriously, but I'm not um, I don't feel like we need to. I I also am like I'm constitutionally unable to like write op-eds um but uh but i don't feel like we have any kind of ethical obligation to handcuff ourselves like you know we're we're powerless enough relatively and and frankly like you know there are there are different vectors of power and like i i followed with fascination and some measure of horror at the whole um the thing that happened at LaSalle the week after i visited um uh, with with that whole phenomenon with uh, Black Girl Dangerous is that what she calls herself? Yeah, Mia McKenzie. Yeah, uh, that that whole phenomenon in which like um, yeah, like race and gender and sexuality are markers um, that clearly um, that are indicators in a big way um, of 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 how power is operating. But like somebody with a lot of followers on on Twitter uh, also potentially has a lot of power and might be operating in a place where those kinds of normal um, w- what we might to it about about where the power lies might be somehow inverted so I don't take for granted that like um, that Loic Waquant is in in the places where this conversation is happening I don't take for granted that he's more powerful than Molly Crabapple I mean she has I assume she has like legions of followers um as she ought to um yeah, and more readers and yeah yeah for sure so um so yeah so there's uh yeah they're just I mean and and this is another way that like the future will belong to the young um and that's good uh but um but yeah I I the, the kinds of um I I I follow with like enwrapped horror, um, the kinds of, uh, you know, um, rituals of purging that happen on Twitter, uh, of those perceived as having foul of a certain kind of, 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 um, orthodoxy. Yeah. 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 I got, I got purged for, from, uh, someone's, uh, friends list because of my, uh, my feelings on this, but, uh, you know, I'm sure I've done that myself more than <laughs> more than a few times. Oh, I don't, I don't yeah. just mean I don't mean like the the individual unfollowing or the individual unfriending. I mean like these these feeding frenzies. Like I don't know if mm. you followed the whole thing uh, over the summer at Jacobin. Um, oh yeah, you know, with like uh, rape threats and that whole thing, and yes. and like the the choosing of sides and the, and the the vocal kind of punishment of of those perceived as having run afoul. Of, of some kind of um, cardinal rule, um, those things like freak me out quite honestly. Like I, I, um, yeah, I'm, they they make me in those. I mean, I, in some sense, like I I find them, you know, in the same way. The part of me that like loves reading Rene Girard with undergrads, you know, like there's something so fascinating and something so you know ritualistic and in some ways religious about those rituals. Um, 
but they make me feel very good about being an, a relative non-participant in such things. Just just to switch gears a little bit as we're we're winding down, because I know you yeah have, I got, uh, you got but, stuff. But um, do, do you want to talk a little bit about what your what your next uh, focus is on? I mean, I'm guessing it's not social media that you're writing on next. Um, um, so you know, I mean, as I said at the outset, you know, my book was written in service to a lot of a lot of masters. Um, and let me just you know, I, I really the the attention you've given to my book and the and the course and having me down like I. I appreciate that to no end, and um, and uh, it was really great to meet you all, and uh, I look forward to uh, continuing to to work together. Um, but you know, the book as like, um, you know, one of the one of the readers of the book who is incarcerated, you know, he was he wanted it to be, you know, as for someone who's who's been talking about structural analysis, the, the book is very heavy on on individuals and personality. Um, and it was about, you know, in some sense, it was, that's because I was thinking about the structures of ethnography, and I really didn't want to reduce people to a type and plug those types into uh, certain kinds of academic discourses and use them to, to like, you know, make arguments uh, in the way that is somewhat standard. But um, there's definitely leftover stuff to be done, and... Um, uh, as I think, as I think um, we've discussed, I, I'm working on a book with uh, Vincent Lloyd, um, who is a philosopher at Syracuse, and the working title of the book is um, "Break Every Yoke: Religion, Justice, and the End of Mass Incarceration." Um, "Break Every Yoke" is from uh, I think it's the 66th book of Isaiah. Um, and it is uh, language um, that the abolitionists uh, favored in the 19th century. And we're thinking about, in that book, Vincent is pretty heavy into political theology. Um, my interests are more kind of American historical, ethnographic. Um, we're thinking about the role, like, you know, there's sort of standard accounts about the role, about the causes of mass incarceration that focus on economics and race and politics and we're thinking about changes in how certain changes in American religion in the mid-20th century um, enabled and underwrote uh, changes in punishment and then we're looking at uh, the ways that um, that religion has been used as a political tool uh, in prisons and then we're thinking about um, the kinds of resources that that religious groups might uh, contribute or um, or share uh, toward uh, toward making abolition a kind of possibility, moving it in from the margin. Because um, while there's certainly exceptions to this rule, uh, prison abolition in this country, because of its particular history, has been um, thoroughly secularist, um, and uh, historically, um, if you want to win. Um, that's not the way to do it. So um, that's that's what that project is about, and and like it will aspire in its way to be um, to be useful. Hope you found that conversation interesting. I was surprised when he turned it back on me. Um, I hope that it wasn't too distracting from uh, what he had to say, which I think was very interesting and touched on um, just a lot of issues. I really appreciate Josh's voice and sort of the honesty and rawness that he always approaches 
thinking through this stuff with. One of these days I'll probably interview some asshole that I don't actually get along with, but I've been very happy and privileged to talk to the people that I have so far. And, you know, coming up soon we'll have uh, Andrew Diltz, who will continue this prison series. Um, I have some more people in the pipeline. It just all depends on time for editing. All right. I hope it was okay to share with you that little story about my father and, you know, trying to track him down. You know, I I take the catchphrase of this show uh, actually really seriously. Um, I don't mean it to be comical at all when I say that your name is your name. I really mean it. And I hope, even in the midst of not having a history for one's name, uh, being alienated from one's name, uh, being deracinated from the world, that I also remember that my name is my name. And I hope that you too remember that your name is your name.